To stay informed of the latest updates, please follow at Germaniapod on Twitter and Instagram. You can always reach me directly by emailing gdupodcast at gmail.com. Hello, welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 1.10, The Marcomannic Wars. In recent episodes, we've discussed some of the issues caused by the increasing interaction between Rome and Germania that led the Germanic tribes to seek greater access to the perks of Roman culture, which led to friction between the two and eventually to war. Before we move forward, there is one additional theory about the causes of the war that I would like to address. One explanation is that due to shifts in northern Germania and up into Scandinavia, uh, climate change, overpopulation, uh, land and food became scarce, forcing those tribal groups to move south. In this telling, the encroachment of this group, and we're really talking about the Goths now, into the territory of the Langonardi and the Obai pushed those tribes more into the territory of the Marcomanni and the Quadi, and as a result, those tribal groups began to more aggressively attack the Roman Empire, driven out of a desperation to find food and shelter. From this telling, the Marcomannic Wars were really the first act in a story that played out over the following three centuries, where a changing climate forced southern migration and increasing conflict over resources closer to the Mediterranean that now needed to support a larger population. While the migratory patterns of the Goths and other groups, uh, the Vandals, the Huns, are going to start becoming more and more a part of the story, uh, we're not quite there yet. The Goths are people that migrated out of Scandinavia down through Poland, but they did not reach the Black Sea until roughly a century later. Archaeological evidence also does not show any sign of mass migrations dated to this period in the mid-2nd century. To be clear, these patterns do start to take shape later on and contribute to future conflicts, uh, but the causes belli of the Marcomannic Wars are more factors of human desires than environmental determinism. Rather than being victims of circumstance, the Germanic tribes conspired together to battle the Romans. Roman armor from this period can be found in tribal graves fights as far north as Denmark, suggesting that the tribal coalition may have unified tribes separated by nearly a thousand miles. As we will see, King Balamar united a confederation that allowed him to attack the Romans on multiple fronts along the Danube, from the Black Forest all the way to the Black Sea. And while it would not be the major front, the tribes along the Rhine, the Chatti, the Chassi, the Hermundri, also were involved, raiding across the river into Roman Germania. As we have seen previously, the German tribes valued their independence, not just from Rome, but from one another. With this confederation, we start to see the structure that would influence the super-tribes of the coming centuries. Rather than a smaller tribe operating separately from more dominant tribes, or having separate clans within tribes that only unified in times of war, the leaders of those minor tribes or smaller clans became more permanent vassals to the tribal kings. Coinciding with the Roman subsidies and increasing trade and market activity, the wealthiest German nobles were able to establish themselves as a more formal aristocracy, 
with political ties to vassal leaders of smaller tribes. As examples, during this period, the Cotini and Osai paid tribute to the Quadi, and the Buri paid tribute to the Marcomanni. In earlier decades, the Romans would try to cut off this kind of a system by providing support to those lesser tribes to, to break the Germanic bonds. Uh, but in the preceding decade, most of the Roman military and political leadership had been reassigned to the east to fight in the Parthian War, which made it more critical for the Romans to maintain a tighter circle of client kings to control Germania. This was the final fuel needed for the transition from independent tribal clans to more quasi-feudal confederations that began to really uh, finalize their form in the, the next century. Now, the Marcomannic Wars were not a true war of liberation, with the Marcomanni trying to push out Roman influence from their territory. They clearly enjoyed the luxuries, wealth, and status that a close relationship with Rome provided. They were looking for ways to become closer to Rome culturally and economically, while maintaining their existing political structures and providing limited military support. The stakes here were around how the tribes would integrate with Rome, not if. The tribes, both independently and together as part of larger coalitions, began petitioning for entrance into the empire during the reign of Antoninus Pius. As we discussed previously, they again approached the empire once Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus became co-emperors 161. The two men were co-rulers until Verus's death in January of 169. In addition to these petitions, along the Rhine, the Chatti restarted raiding and attacks into Germania Superior around 162 and 163. In response, Marcus Aurelius raised two new legions in 165, the second and third Legio Italica, indicating his anticipation of war in Germania. Before we move forward, I'd like to address some of the nomenclature. Uh, by convention, I'm referring to this run of conflicts from roughly 165 to 180 as the Marcomannic Wars. History has settled on this name as the Marcomanni were initially central to the coalition that faced Rome, though these conflicts have also been referred to as the Northern Wars, the Danube Wars, and perhaps most appropriately for us, the German Wars. There are merits to all of these names, though none is strictly accurate, so it seems simplest to just stick with the conventional Marcomannic Wars. In reality, the Romans would face a wide variety of not just German, but also Sarmatian tribes during this period, including the Marcomanni, the Quadi, the Azigis, the Roxoloni, the Chadi, and many more. The annexation of Dacia put the empire in contact with a much more diverse range of tribal groups, and I'm sure the Romans expected to continue playing the different groups off one another, as they had for centuries. In the winter of 166-67, 6,000 warriors from the Langobardi and Obai tribes crossed the upper Danube and invaded Pannonia. The tribe's causus belli was that the Romans had failed to pay them agreed-upon subsidies. Invading Roman territory might have been a reasonable response in those circumstances, except for three minor details. One, the Romans never agreed to these subsidies. Two, the Romans never paid these tribes any subsidies. And three, the Romans had never even had any contact with these tribes, as they were based more towards the interior of Germania. 
In fact, the only way these tribes could have reached the Danube was by passing through the territory of the Quadi, alleged Roman allies. How curious. The commander of a cavalry unit, Marcrinius Avidus Catonius Vindex, gathered together a makeshift force of cavalry with infantry support and easily drove off the invaders in a glorified skirmish, with no more than 2,000 men engaged from each side. Simultaneously, the Chatti pushed into Raetia and were quickly met by Governor Ophidius Victorinus in a series of skirmishes. After this initial fighting, the tribes fell back and sent a diplomatic mission into Upper Pannonia to meet with the governor, Marcus Aulius Bassus. Most critically, this mission was led by Balamar, king of the Marcomanni and a Roman client. We don't know much about Balamar. Uh, he was likely born around 140 AD, so he was not even 30 when the Marcomannic Wars began. Given the paucity of records about him, it seems unlikely that he was ever taken to be educated by the Romans or serve in their legion during his youth. But after these initial skirmishes, on the 5th of May, 167, the disputes were settled with Balamar providing a guarantee of good behavior on behalf of these smaller tribes. Good thing that didn't get out of hand. Again, before we move forward, I should point out that there is some disagreement about the precise dating of different events early in the Marcomannic Wars that could impact the overall interpretation of the priorities of the tribes as well as the Roman government, uh, represented by Marcus Aurelius. In his book, Marcus Aurelius's Reign Miracle and the Marcomannic Wars, Peter Kovacs dedicates an entire chapter to arguments around the year of the first Marcomanni Quadi assault on Italia, based on references made to different consuls and provincial governors, references to Lucius Varius and the date of his death, and other evidence from different Roman records. It is too deep in the weeds for our story, though Kovacs seems to come down on the invasion that we're about to discuss taking place sometime around 169 to 71, putting it several years after the initial skirmishing along the Danube. I'm going to use dating that I believe reflects more historical consensus and, more importantly, seems to reflect more narrative consistency, but I want to make you all aware, as it is important to remember both A, there is some uncertainty around the dates and events, and B, interpreting history based on narrative consistency may be giving too much credit for premeditated planning than many historical figures and events deserve. According to Roman records, on the 29th of May, 167, the Dacian gold mines at Rosia Montana ceased operations with no further records logged or archived. Like any good bureaucracy, the Romans loved forms and records, but more importantly, they really loved gold. Why would they stop mining and making records of the, oh my god, what's that? A joint Germanic force led by the Marcomanni and Quadi burst into Dacia and seized the gold mines. They then proceeded to overrun Raetia, Noricum, Moesia, and Pannonia before crossing the Alps and disrupting the valuable amber trade route. The Germans continued to follow the amber road all the way to its terminus in Aquileia on the Adriatic coast in northern Italy. Supposedly 20,000 Roman citizens died during this extended raid, with tens of thousands more taken back into slavery. Upon reaching Aquileia, the Marcomanni and Quadi were forced to pause and consider their options. 
Aquileia was originally founded by the Romans around 180 BC as a fortress to protect against encroachments by the Gauls. Over the following 300 years, it went from a border outpost to a critical trading hub of roughly 100,000 residents, as the Roman Republic continued to expand across Italia and beyond. The amber trade had made it a wealthy city, and that wealth was enhanced by the discovery of nearby gold mines in Noricum, uh, close to the modern city of Klagenfurt, Austria. It made a very attractive target for the German tribes if they could breach the city walls. Unfortunately for them, while they were tough warriors and were able to have some success against Roman legions when properly organized, the German tribes were always lousy at siegecraft. Even the Dacians, with access to contemporary siege weapons, were never much of a threat to actually capture a Roman city. The Germans' pause at Aquileia gave the Romans time to send a proper relief force led by Claudius Pompeius. While this campaign is not well documented, the tribes quickly returned across the Alps in order to consolidate their plunder. The route from Aquileia to their bases near the Danube was long, roughly 500 kilometers or 300 miles, and as winter set in, the supply lines would become exposed and unreliable. But critically, they had invaded into the home province of the Romans, wreaked havoc, took slaves, carted off gold, amber, and other goods, and returned back home undefeated. The psychological damage to the Romans was greater than even the material and human costs. Marcus Aurelius was forced to start raising money for new troops, and led by example by holding a good old-fashioned yard sale. Golden goblets, crystal chandeliers, silken robes, even his wife's jewels. Anything from the imperial household that wasn't nailed down was fair game. Obviously, this was not going to be enough to outfit, supply, and pay an army, but he was setting the example that this was a serious threat and required the entire empire to sacrifice to protect their way of life. Marcus relocated legions from Britannia to protect Italy, and also raised six new legions from slaves, gladiators, the city police, bandits, basically anyone who could hold a sword or help build a camp. In addition to the threat from the Germans, Marcus also needed to replace soldiers who were falling to an even greater threat, the Antonine Plague, also known as the Galen Plague, due to his early descriptions of the disease. Soldiers returning from the Parthian Wars in the east brought a devastating plague that wreaked havoc on the western provinces. It is not certain what illness the Antonine Plague was, though smallpox seems a likely candidate. It continued to devastate communities across the empire until around 180, with a fatality rate of roughly 25%. It is estimated that this plague killed 5 to 10 million people within Rome's borders from 165 to 180, roughly 10% of the population. Marcus Aurelius declared that the state would pay for the funerals of all plague victims, as there was really little else he could do to relieve the suffering. Between dealing with the effects of plague and raising and training new troops, the Romans spent 168 building fortifications at the southern end of the Alpine passes to limit entry into Italia. Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus jointly visited Aquileia as a show of support to the community. Lucius had to be convinced to make the trip, as he preferred to remain in Rome, but Marcus did not trust him alone in the city. Marcus planned to spend the winter of 168-69 to 69 there to prepare for a campaign across the Danube in the spring. 
During these preparations, the Romans and Marcomanni entered into an interim truce. At the urging of Lucius Ferris, the co-emperors used this as a reason to return to Rome for the winter. On this journey, however, Varus suffered a massive stroke, lingered for three days, and then died. There is a saying among American football fans that when your team has two quarterbacks, that means it has no quarterback. Basically, every team needs one leader to rally around, to believe in, and to make the final decisions. And trying to split that ultimate authority between multiple people means that no one really holds it. With Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Ferris, this was never really the case. At the end of the day, Marcus was always the more serious, studious leader, always considering what was best for the empire beyond merely his own desires, and he is remembered as one of the great Stoic philosophers as well as one of the great Roman emperors. Ferris was always more interested in having a good time, hunting, drinking, gambling. Now that Varus is dead, Marcus will not have to go through the trouble of negotiating with a colleague to, and can just serve as the ultimate decision maker for Rome. However, as we follow the events of the next decade, uh, I can't help but think that Roman leadership could have benefited at times from the input of someone who's going to ask why they were freezing on campaign in Germania when they could be back home drinking, gambling, or hunting. During the spring and summer of 169, the Antonine Plague raged in Rome, and dealing with the fallout further required Marcus Aurelius to put off his planned campaign into Germania. At this point, the tribes made an offer to return both captives and deserters from the prior campaign, trying to forestall any Roman reprisal. Marcus was not moved. In September or October, Marcus moved to Pannonia, from where he planned to launch the campaign starting in the spring of 170 three years after, or possibly one year after, or possibly one year before, the Germanic invasion of Italia. At this point, the confederation seemed to be about ten tribes strong, with Balamar, king of the Marcomanni, its nominal leader. Marcus used the winter to try and peel off some of Balamar's allies to weaken his position ahead of the campaign. He entered into negotiations with the Quadi. In exchange for returning 13,000 prisoners and deserters from the prior years and staying out of this war, Rome would recognize their current territorial borders and would deny the Marcomanni, Sarmatians, and any others from annexing part of their territory. The Quadi were one of the strongest tribes in the overall confederation. This pledge of neutrality would weaken that coalition and put the Quadi in great position to dominate Bohemia, once Rome defeated the Marcomanni and forced harsh terms upon them. The Romans began to question the wisdom of this alliance almost immediately, however, as the prisoners and deserters returned were uniformly the sick, the old, and the disabled. In early 170, the Roman army assembled along the Danube included 12 full legions plus auxiliaries, and numbered at least 100,000 and perhaps as many as 140,000 men. Marcus Aurelius had brought in ships from the fleets around Messinum, Ravenna, and Britannia to reinforce the Danube fleet, and expected to have complete control over the river. The Marcomanni and their German allies fielded an army roughly 70,000 strong, with additional Sarmatian allies operating on the Hungarian plain. The tribes were able to muster such a large force for two reasons. Uh, first, many women fought in the army, and slain women in full armor were found in the aftermath of the first major battle in 170. 
And second, many tribes, such as the Estengi on the lower Danube, were basically one tribal mobile army, which meant that nearly everyone who could hold a spear, from the oldest men to the youngest boys, would take part in the fighting. Now, prior to this campaign, the Romans had consistently enjoyed several major advantages over the Germanic tribes in battle, most of which we've discussed previously. Uh, first, the scarcity of iron in Germania meant the Germans were always fighting with inferior weapons and armor. Uh, they would capture steel weapons from Roman camps or from Roman casualties whenever they could, but the standard weaponry of the tribes was limited to the framae, with plenty of fighters using wooden clubs or throwing rocks. The tribes had also not yet mastered archery, further limiting their martial options. Second, while many of the tribes were known as great horsemen, the relative poverty of the region meant that, for the most part, very few could actually keep a horse. Since stirrups had not been invented yet, cavalry was not the overwhelming military advantage that it would become in future centuries, but this still limited the mobility and scouting of Germanic armies and limited their tactical options. For the most part, German horsemen would dismount and join the infantry charge once the battle began, relying on the horse only for escape. The decentralized hierarchy made coordinated planning a challenge, and for the most part, the German tactics consisted of a single massive infantry charge, with no troops kept in reserve for a second wave of attack. Given the discipline and endurance of the Roman legions, in a pitched battle, the Germans had very little chance unless they held a large numeric advantage and could isolate and overwhelm the Roman forces. Uh, fourth, only the Chatti maintained something like a standing army that would go on campaign well supplied. For the rest, they had to capture and raid necessary supplies once on the move, so a single defeat left them without food. After a victory, they were much more focused on gathering plunder than on following up and finishing off a defeated enemy. Five, over time, the Germans had learned the value of strategic ambushes in territory where they held an advantage in familiarity and understanding of the terrain. But they had never fully adopted guerrilla tactics, uh, and despite the Roman fear of German forests following the Teutoburg disaster, the tribes preferred to base themselves in more open spaces where they could see the approach of another tribe or army, whether they were friend or foe. Given the careful planning and the superior numbers that they had amassed, the Romans were right to be optimistic about the campaign in 170. Unfortunately, in addition to now two centuries of experience in fighting against and with the Romans and gaining a better understanding of their tactics, the increasing wealth and inequality over the previous 50 years had allowed the tribes to establish more of a full-time warrior class, along with better-defined hierarchy based on their newer nobility. Similarly, the ability of wealthier tribes to buy off the loyalty of smaller tribes made it easier for them to form a stronger coalition. This became clear to Marcus Aurelius and the Romans in 170 when they soon found themselves fighting on four fronts. Along the Upper Rhine, south of the Danube in Pannonia, northeast of the Danube in Dacia, and along the Lower Danube down into the Balkans. Effectively, the theater of war stretched nearly the entire length of the Danube and then pushed north onto the Rhine and south into the Balkans, a distance of nearly 2,000 miles, or roughly 3,000 kilometers. Prior to the start of the campaign, an oracle told Marcus Aurelius that he would have victory if he threw two lions into the Danube. Marcus dutifully had the lions thrown in the river. The animals swam across to the north shore 
at which point the Marcomanni, taking them for some new breed of dog, clubbed them both to death. That's what I would call a bad omen. This same oracle in 167 had proclaimed that the gods foretold of a great victory. Following the German invasion of Italia, he then said that the gods did not tell him who would win this great victory. At this point, personally, I would have thrown the oracle into the Danube. The details of the initial battle in Pannonia are sketchy, as the Romans did not like to publicize their defeats. But the Marcomanni had two advantages. The first was that the Zyges, the most warlike of the Sarmatians, had arrived from the Hungarian plain to support their new ally. Additionally, while not technically breaking their treaty with Rome, the Quadi provided sanctuary to the Marcomanni and allowed them access to and passage through their territory. The Romans suffered a major defeat, with roughly 20,000 legionaries dead. Among the dead was Macrinus Vindex, who had successfully fought off the initial tribal encroachment in the winter of 166 and 67. In addition to supporting the Marcomanni in Pannonia, the Sarmatian tribes also caused havoc in Dacia. Over the prior winter, Marcus Aurelius thought he had secured peace in that region by paying off the Sarmatian chief Tarbus when he threatened to burn Dacia to the ground. However, when an internal revolt broke out in Dacia in 170, Tarbus sent men to assist the revolutionaries. In the fighting that followed, Claudius Fronto was killed. Fronto was an inner circle advisor to Marcus Aurelius and had been legate under Lucius Verus during the Parthian War. He was serving as governor of Dacia after serving in the same position in Upper Moesia during the initial Germanic invasion. While the Romans were dealing with the loss of these important leaders, the Roxolani joined with the Costobosi on a trek from modern Poland across the Carpathian Mountains, across the Lower Danube, and into the Roman province of Thrace. They then began a 650-mile-long plundering party through the Balkans down into Greece, reaching as far as Eleusius, roughly 10 miles or 18 kilometers from Athens, and Eleteia near Delphi. These tribes spent most of 170 pillaging and plundering, and they met no resistance until an army led by Vahilis Gratus defeated the Costobosi in Greece and forced them to retreat. By the end of the year, most of these invaders were back north of the Danube, with the exception of a few stragglers who connected with deserters from the Roman army to form bandit gangs in the region. Along the Upper Rhine, the Chatti also made an effort to invade into Roman Germania Superior, but they were easily defeated by the 12th Legion, led by Didius Julianus. Marcus Aurelius did not want to take chances, though, and sent reinforcements to the area, led by his son-in-law, Claudius Pompeianus. By the end of 170, the Romans had regained control along their frontiers, and no more of their enemies remained in their territory. Still, the campaign year of 170 had been mostly disastrous for the Romans, and they now had to regroup and determine what could be done to stop this new united, centralized, fierce Germanic coalition. <laughs>